Today we'll be reading out of 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abounding to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for the food for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only to su supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Heavenly Father, we are Lord, we just ask that you'd help every one of us to uh, grab hold of it, what it is that you've uh, said for, to us in your word. We thank you for your word that uh, uh, is a light onto our, our feet and our path. And uh, um, we just uh, ask that you'd help Aaron to uh, communicate what it is you've put on his heart and that we would hear and apply what we, uh, what we hear today. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everyone. Well, today is the morning we will talk about giving, but probably not the type of giving you immediately are thinking about. We will talk this morning about how much God has given to us and how we respond to his generosity. We'll continue in our journey through Nehemiah 10 through 12. It's a long passage. Uh, there's over 300 names in our passage this morning, and some of you might be excited to hear me read through them, and I will not. Uh, I was also not willing to torture Dave in reading of the scripture this morning and seeing how well he did. But these are important names. These are important people. They are in scripture for a reason, because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. Worship is the theme of our passage this morning as they continue in their gathering that we saw last weekend. They worship God because of how much He has done for them. Sometimes during member interviews, pastors are asked the question, well, how frequently do I need to be here? Or how much of the Bible do I truly need to read? Or what's the minimum amount of money I need to give or amount of time I need to serve to the body of Christ? And I think those are the wrong questions. Paul tells the Galatian church some things that there is no law to. There's no requirement to. Namely, it's the fruit of the Spirit. You're probably familiar with the passage. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There is no governor on the gas pedal for these types of things. You can't outdo love. You can't be too kind. You can't have too much self-control. When we experience God's grace, the gospel complements the law. And grace complements truth. I heard a pastor say recently, law is not entirely bad, but it's just not as good as the gospel. God's grace affects the people in our passages worship this morning. And it also affects ours, and we'll see in three ways. In our generosity, in our availability, and our community. So would you pray with me? Fathers, we sang three songs that talk about your mercy and your grace and your love that came through your Son. God, would you help us to rest in that? God, we thank you that you have earned our salvation for us. And God, we ask that in this time, as we gather, as we open up your word, as we see how it applies to our life, would you give us the grace to respond in worship? And Father, we ask this for your name, for your glory, and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Nehemiah chapter 10 will show us first how God's grace affects our worship towards generosity. Where God established a covenant with his people, we saw last week in chapter 9, they ratify the covenant, and at the end of the chapter, they give a covenant in response to God that they will commit themselves to the work of ministry. We'll skip the list of names as the chapter starts out with, and we'll pick up in verse 28. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, or the Lord our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seven years and exaction of every debt. We'll stop right there. So Ezra and Nehemiah both reinforce the fact that it's not just the leaders who participate in the work of God. The entire community, everyone, this whole body of believers takes part in what is happening in the text. Together they renounce their heathen practices. They pledge fidelity to the covenant that they've made with God and they commit to walk in and observe God's law and obey it every day. They make an oath in verse 29 because of God's mercy. This isn't about money. It's about God's generosity to them and it leads them to worship. Based on God's great mercy, Paul tells the Colossians church this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. 
for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Will you put off, but also put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so in our text this morning, the Jews are putting forth effort to kill the sin within them. They are putting off their idols. They are putting off their covetousness in worship. Ezra did the same thing when he made the Jews divorce their non-Jewish wives. It was a hard passage. It's online if you want to listen to it. These books are connected where God is holy and he calls his people to give themselves to holiness as well. They say that if they break the law that curses would fall on them. And the point is not to break the law to begin with. Because against obedience... There is no law. There is no, well, I've obeyed enough. God wants them to say, we will have nothing to do with disobedience. And if they break the law, the curses will fall on them. In the Old Testament, there are three uses for the law. I thought it'd be helpful to go through those. The first is, it shows us how God is perfect. He is righteous, that he is sinless. Leviticus is often repeated, be holy for I am holy. And here are some laws to help you, friends, to do that. The law gives knowledge of sin, Paul says to the Roman church. The number of times we see in Scripture where we fail to obey. We can sense right and wrong by just reading God's law and with our conscience, but we need God's law specifically to tell us this is right or wrong. It shows us first God's perfection. The law also has a civil use to restrain evil, where the law punishes evil. People are in jail today because they have violated the laws of our country. This can be abused. We saw back when the pandemic was going through that in Canada, pastors were arrested and put into jail for months because they decided, well, we are going to follow God's law and have worship services. Laws are meant to protect the vulnerable, to show us right and wrong, and executing judgment against violations. That's why Paul can tell us to submit to your governing authorities so long as they are following God's law themselves because the government is under God's sovereign rule to restrain evil. But we know they fail at times, just like we do. The third law, the third use of the law, is the law shows us what to do to obey God, to please Him. It's like a family code. The Christian is free from laws that require obedience to earn God's favor, but we are now free to obey in light of what God has done for us. We're still under the law of Christ, this rule of life that we are called to follow and obey, responding to God's generosity towards us. Against such things, there is no law. Love your neighbor. I like to be loved like a neighbor. Rebuke me or one another. I don't want to go down this path. Please tell me if I'm going down a path that's going to lead to destruction. Parents, you understand these things. Encourage one another. When I'm down, I want you to build me up. I know you like to be built up. Against such things, there is no law. In our house, we have rules. Love one another is a key one. Some rules have natural consequences. Don't do your laundry. You have dirty clothes. 
Maybe you have similar rules in your homes or when you had children growing up. But we don't have rules that fall into curses in our home. Although the Jews said that that was in our text and kids aren't cursed in our home. Although sometimes when we give them chores, they feel like it's a curse. But there are consequences for things like disobedience in our home. Losing privileges, losing freedoms is an easy thing that parents often take away. But these curses aren't the focus of the text. Obediences. God's people, based on His abundant mercy that we saw last week, that we cannot outsin the grace of God. They live, God's people live a certain type of way. Not to earn anything, but because God has already earned it for us. Penalties are not the emphasis, friends, faithfulness is. But it could end up difficult, and it could end up poorly for them. Having come back from exile, they know firsthand that there are consequences to sin. Disciplines are a means by which God loves His children, and God teaches us to obey. And God knows our hearts. He knows their hearts as well. Do we really want this? Look at Jeremiah 34, 18. And the man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into two pieces and pass between the two parts. If you recall our time in Genesis, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he passed through the middle of this animal filleted in two. And the whole idea of this covenant making that God says, if we break the covenant, let it be to us as is to this animal. And like Ezra did, they didn't want to violate God's command, and so they decided in Ezra to divorce their unbelieving spouses, and here they said they will not give their sons or daughters to this unholy marriage. They won't violate God's will on marriage. Verse 31, they also won't violate God's will related to the Sabbath. These are two big areas of holiness for the Jewish people. And what these do is they communicate, God, we trust you. Be holy, for God is holy. Don't try to be God always working, never resting, is what the Sabbath is for. Don't be unholy by marrying that which will cause us to worship another God with a lowercase g. Paul said that, Idolatry is covetousness or sexual immorality, desiring that which is not yours, grasping for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Desiring a woman against God's will is idolatry. Never resting is idolatry because it causes us to act like God, that we can always work, that we never need to rest. But they also commit that their stuff belongs to God, since none of it belongs to them anyway. Starting in verse 32, they recount some Mosaic laws on generosity they have violated, and they don't want to do it any longer. Look at 32. We also take ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. It's like a census tax coming from Exodus chapter 30. Off the top, before they spend anything on their own, they give back to God what is already His. And the list to follow is a comprehensive list of giving used for the sake of worship. 
First, the showbread in 33 for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. This is from Leviticus 24. Bread was consistently needed for offering because the manna wasn't falling from the sky any longer. Someone needed to provide it. The, God, the people of God were to provide the means by which they could worship. Verse 34, We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. I don't need to tell you, Vermonters, that when you burn wood, it goes away. You need to continue to provide wood for a fire that was to be consistently burning. It doesn't last forever. The people of God were to give to this work. In verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions. The first, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests of the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is in the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Friends, this is a summary of these agricultural offerings to supply for the priests and those who worked in the temple. And it's all first fruits. First, first, first. God doesn't get the leftovers. God gets the best. And his people worship with their stuff. They designate the first of their crop. After all of the hard work, gathering all the sap, boiling for hours, you just want to get some ice cream and pour some nice maple syrup on it. They say, no, God gets the first. Giving to God acknowledges that he is God and they are not. We don't control anything, and giving fights our idolatry, and it fights our covetousness. Maybe the crop won't succeed. You won't get a second or a third harvest, or a hard freeze comes, and a storm comes. We don't know what will come. There may not be a second or a third cut, but they commit to offer to God anyway, because they're showing that they trust God to provide for their needs. When our kids were younger and we heard the phrase that I think every child says at some point, that's mine, we would often ask the question, whose is it? It was mine. I bought it or I was given it. And no, they would eventually catch on, well, it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to mom and dad. It doesn't belong to them. When we, have, when we know that God owns everything, we combat our natural inclinations to greed. They say they won't marry or worship other gods. This is the first commandment of the ten. We won't break the Sabbath. This is the fourth. And then it connects to loving your neighbor. And they won't covet, which is the tenth of the ten commandments. And these ten commandments are a response to God for what he has done for them. And it shows us God's holiness. It shows us our sin. It leads us to live God-glorifying lives because God has been generous to us. And there's no mistake that you take the bookends and also the reminder that God is God and we are not right in the middle. 
to summarize all of Allah. And so they give back to God. Verse 38, And the priests and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, and as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. And so they give a tithe. A tithe literally means, in the Hebrew, just 10%. And the Levites tithe 10% of that back to the work of God. That's why we participate with other organizations here as a church. And we want to set aside 10% of what even we get to the work of ministry outside of our walls and windows and outside of our group as a church of Cornerstone. And so these people, they gave back to the work of God, and neglecting God's house means that they would have neglected their worship. They don't want to do that anymore. And so I think a brief discussion on generosity would be pertinent. And that's why I had Dave start out with our reading from 2 Corinthians. This is not when the pastor says you need to give 10%. Against things like this, there is no such law. God's people are to be generous, as we saw, though, in that passage. Paul says it's between you and God, as individuals. It's done freely. It's not done under compulsion, because against things like that, there is no such law. Giving is an opportunity, though, to trust God, to give back to God what He already has given to us. Giving biblically is an act of gratitude. Giving biblically is an act of service to God, who abundantly blesses us. Giving to a church means that we get to help minister to each other, to minister to the world around us, to support our building so that we can worship together in this place. 10% is a great starting point, but it doesn't have to be that. Maybe generosity is 50% for someone in here. Maybe it's 2%. We aren't like the Mormon church where we're requiring 10% or you're out. It's between you and Jesus. And so how much God has been generous to us and how much He has given to us should reciprocate in us giving back as much as we can to Him. Against such things, there is no law. And so Nehemiah, he hints at the idea that Jesus communicates in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Augustine says, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. We saw this expressed last week. We will see this as we get to chapter 12 that God's people are to respond to Him in inexpressible joy because of all that we have received from Him. Because of God's abundant mercy, they simply express their gratitude back to God and generosity so that God may be worshipped. And so as you consider your own response to God's abundant mercy, consider what the Jews did. They committed to not go after other gods. They committed to not act like God, violating the Sabbath. And they committed to giving back to God what was already given to Him. These are all expressions of worship. 
They worshiped God with their stuff. They gave back to Him what He already owned. In other words, in actions, they displayed, You're God. I'm not. They fought their idolatry. They fought their desire to worship anything other than God. They hit the main ways to evaluate idolatry. A bank account and a calendar. Where your money goes and what's on your calendar often shows us your priorities. So maybe you should consider your calendar and your bank account and where your time and your money goes to evaluate what you truly worship. But what about what we watch, what we say, what we do, how we play, where we go, what we give, what we drink, what we submit to? It also shows us and the world around us what we worship. So what do you worship? Friends, only the God, only God deserves our worship. Everything else is idolatry. And we see in Nehemiah 10 that the whole community of God's people participated in this. That's why we, as a church, if we see a brother or sister in sin, we should go tell them, hey, don't do that. That's a loving thing to do. If a brother or sister says, hey, I want to go do this for God, we get to come alongside each other and say, can I help you? I'd love to come alongside you in this. Where God's grace affects everything with worship. First, in generosity. And chapter 11 will show us in our availability. The next two chapters will be a little quicker. Nehemiah 11, verse 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so we see that some of the people lived outside of the city, some of the people lived inside the city, and they cast lots and they tithe. They give ten percent of their people to come back into the city to worship. And so we worship where we live. And they wanted to be available to worship in Jerusalem. They wanted to live as close as they can to the temple. But again, the entirety of the people, they participate. And they make this commitment. We see chiefs in verse 3, priests in verse 10, Levites in verse 15, gatekeepers in 19, and overseers in 22. When you buy a home... Oftentimes when you get the keys, your realtor says, okay, it's time to go make this house a home. Put your decorations in. Bring your furniture in. When we bought our first house in Vermont, uh, one of you has actually been in that house, but every room in the house was a different color. Some was the darkest of blue, the orangest of orange, and Kristen made our house a home by painting every wall in that house white. Jerusalem has been a city for hundreds, thousands of years. It was a city of Salem all the way back in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was from. It was inhabited by King David. It remained a city for the people of God, even when the majority of them, if not all of them, were taken into exile to Babylon. And repopulating the city appointed by God for His people to dwell with the people of God makes this true city of God the city of God. It's similar to the church. The church isn't a building. The church is God's people who just so happen on Sundays to gather in this building. Don't miss this in Nehemiah 11. God is building a people and calling them to worship Him. They bear worship based on how they give 
and they also worship based on where they live. They wanted to be available to worship together. I think it's easy to skip over chapters like this of the Bible that just list out a bunch of names and a bunch of people. And almost 200 names are written in just this chapter alone. But these people leave their homes to go to the city of God to worship their God. There's 200 names that give us an example to follow. They sacrifice comfort to bolster the needs of the people of God in the city. For God is building His people and He calls them to generosity and He calls them to availability. I'd be sad if God called some of you to go to another church, to bolster another church, to even plant another church. Some of you came here to plant this church. That would be a sad day, but it's also a God-glorifying day as He builds His church. Some of you might be even called to a dumb state like California. I don't know why He would do that. God builds His church. He uses His people to do it. So we must be available to respond to his call. In some sense, giving money is the easy part in these two chapters. Hey, a hundred bucks, maybe even more. But to leave my home, to pack up everything, to go, it's a logistically a lot of work and a big deal and financially probably even more costly. You know how many generations of my family have lived in this area? Or, I just moved here to this area. Maybe God isn't calling you to move. But maybe He's calling you to a little more sacrifice. Maybe being just available to what He has of you. Maybe it's not where you live. Maybe it's how you live. Friends, He's worth everything. We can't neglect the body of believers. That's not being available. We must be here. Preaching to the choir because you are here. We participate as much as we can in what we do here. There's no law against that as well. Well, I turned the coffee pot on this morning in the back. Is that enough? Maybe. I'm good for the year. How about jumping into a kid's class? Joining us on Wednesday night? Coming every... Monday morning, early, to pray with us. God's grace affects their worship. It affects our worship as well. To generosity, to availability, and finally, in community. This morning's text is about worship, like all we have seen in Ezra and Nehemiah both. So let's look at chapter 12, where they worship in community. We have more names. Priests and Levites make up a list from verses 1 to 26. You can read that on your own time if you'd like. But without slowing down and looking closely, we could miss something. Nehemiah connects God's redemptive plan in rebuilding a wall with what he has already done in rebuilding a temple we saw in Ezra. Verse 1 recounts what has already taken place with Zerubbabel, the governor, and Jeshua, the high priest, and the first group of exiles that returned a hundred years or so prior. Let me read Ezra 2.2. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Raham, and Bana. Verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Zeruiah, Jeremiah, Ezra. Nehemiah accounts for what took place some 100 years prior. 
connecting these two books together into a unified whole. Together, they worship even the brothers and sisters who came prior to them. Everyone participates. We come from a long line of faithful brothers and sisters who have given themselves to worship, who have given themselves to generosity, who have given themselves to be here and available for God's people so that the family of God can continue to grow. The Levites come with thanksgiving in 12 verse 8. And the Levites, Jeshua, Buni, Bunui, Cadmio, Cherubiah, Judah, and Mananiah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. They came with priests. Go down to verse 24. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua the son of Cadmio, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. All of this is done in accordance with the command of King David. The blessing before them is reminiscent of the joy at the completion of the temple when in Ezra chapter 3, this is what took place. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Joy is the right attitude at all feasts of celebration before the world, before the Lord. They worship in generosity. They worship in their availability. They worship together in community. And look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. God's work in their lives brings them an abundance of joy. They purify themselves in verse 31. They bring up two great choirs, like a kid's classroom, right? You got one half of the room says, row, row, row your boat, and then the next half of the room starts, and they go back and forth, maybe trying to outdo one another and showing honor to God. Well, I praise God for this breath I can take and the ability to sing. Well, I praise God for the breath, but also for the heartbeat that I have. I praise God for this. Well, I praise God for this and that. And in some sense, they're trying to outdo one another and giving God all the glory that he is due. And we need each other to do that because God blesses you in different ways and he blesses you and me and we all get to rejoice together in what he has done as we get to worship our loving Father. And the chapter finishes with this in Nehemiah 12, 44 to 47. On that day, Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first roots, the tithes to gather into them the portions required for the law, by the law, for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields and the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purifications, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David, and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs for the praise and thanksgiving to God. And in all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. 
You see the generosity again? They open the storerooms. They bring the contributions, first roots and tithes, while they rejoice according to the law of the priests. They purify themselves for the service of God according to the command of David. They're following the scriptures. They worship God who has given them their stuff while setting apart not only their stuff, but their entire lives to be that of worship. God created them to worship and God created us to worship. And true worship is worshiping our loving and gracious Heavenly Father. We sing the doxology here every Sunday since we started this sermon series. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We praise Him. We worship Him above everything. God is more important than our stuff. God is more important than where we live. And giving up some of the valuable things that may seem very important to us might be huge sacrifices for you. But in the grand scheme of things, we gain everything by giving of ourselves to God while just losing little trinkets, some comforts that we enjoy here on this earth. And God's work is accomplished by His sovereign hand, but He continues and uses the entire community of God to do it, to lead them collectively to worship. And so Ezra and Nehemiah have both laid out and managed to present a complex history that is orderly, that is communal, directing God's people to worship. They're restored as a people to worship with their stuff, making sacrifice to a God has sacrificed much of himself, all of himself and his son. Yet he did not sacrifice his character, the covenant-keeping God who lives and loves, or he lives, sorry, who loves his people. That O was not an I. So as we approach Easter, next week is What's the holiday? I forgot to slip my mind. Palm Sunday. Wow. Don't forget, this is why Jesus came. To die according to His grace for those like you and I who were at one point His enemies. Where He took on our sin. He died in our place. He was buried and after three days He rose from the dead to give us newness of life. Conquering death on your behalf and on my behalf. That's an abundance of grace. That's generosity, leaving heaven in eternity to die a sinner's death for you and for me. And so these next couple weeks, hopefully every Sunday, we consider Jesus' death. We consider Jesus' resurrection. And friends, let's be a worshipful church. Let's be generous back to God. Let's be available for what He wants to do in and through us. And let's do this together. Because it's a joy that we get to experience as we serve one another, as we worship our loving God, who has done everything for us and given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive in the death of His Son and His resurrection from the dead. So would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you for your inexpressible gift, your abundant mercy, your abundant grace, grace that is greater than our sin. We thank you that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through your Son, Jesus Christ. And with him there is grace upon grace. Like a wave on the shore of the sea, just continuing to come over and over and over again. So God, would you help us to rest in that? God, would you help us to work in that? God, would you help us to live worshipful lives, giving back to you the glory and honor that you are due, giving back to you the stuff that you've entrusted to our care and stewardship, giving back to you everything, all of us, desiring to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, would you help us to do that for your glory, but also for your, our joy. And we thank you and we praise you. All God's people said, amen.